Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 11th, 2023. Uh, a couple of months ago, an interesting interview with the historian Nelson Lichtenstein. Uh, he's the co-author of a new book on Bill Clinton called A Fabulous Failure, the Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. I don't think uh, Lichtenstein is a great fan certainly politically, of Bill Clinton. I don't think he knows him personally. Uh, my guest on the show today has uh, a different perspective, shall we say, on Clinton, although his book is actually not on Clinton. Um, my guest, uh, Craig R. Smith, uh, MD, uh, a doctor, very famous doctor, is a heart surgeon. And he was the heart surgeon who in 2004 performed a remarkable uh, uh, operation on Clinton that indeed saved his life. Um, Craig R. Smith has a new book out. It's not on Clinton. It's about being a doctor, nobility and small things, a surgeon's path. And he is joining us from his hospital uh, on the upper west side of New York City. Uh, Craig, um, yeah, I lost the connection, but it's back. Oh, well, it's even doctors lose again. the connection, Craig. Yeah, yeah. Um, hope that doesn't happen again. My introduction focused on your role in saving Bill Clinton's life in 2004. Tell me a little bit about that. It was featured in the New York Times. It made you a celebrity. Uh, you're a very high-end doctor. What was that like, saving Bill Clinton's life? Well... It was very gratifying and, and certainly different than what I do every day in some respects. But the thing I spend most time explaining when I'm asked this question is that it was really not so different from the things we all do every day. And in many respects, that's what makes it possible that Bill Clinton and everyone else deserves the safe harbor of routine. So one of the first objectives in taking care of people like that is to be sure you give them that safe harbor. Now, everybody's different. Uh, every patient is different. Sometimes the sort of thing that will make you anxious about a case or make you worry about a case is something to do with their medical history or their anatomy. Sometimes it's something to do with their social background, like you know, their importance in the world. But it's just another variable, really. And if, if you can't line that up and deal with it just the way you do other variables, then you can't provide the service you have to provide. So it really was relatively routine in the context of coronary bypass surgery, relatively routine coronary bypass operation. Was it routine to have secret service in the room? Well, of course not. And I've only done that once, but, uh, but it was overall quite routine and he was a great patient. It was routine. And of course it wasn't routine. Not everyone uh, is lucky enough to have Craig R. Smith as their surgeon. Lots of promise these days, Craig, on democratizing the medical system, online surgery, AI. Uh, could you imagine a time in the future where anyone and everyone has access to 
doctors of your skill and experience? Well, first of all, to uh, disagree slightly with the way you posed the question, thousands of people have had the have had the benefit of me. I mean, I, I'm not I've I've done thousands and thousands of operations, so uh, I spread myself around as well as I can. That said, your question is a good one. Uh, it's impossible to scale an individual the way you would need to to reach the entire world the way things are now. Whether AI will solve that, well, we don't know. AI and robotics, in a sense, robotic surgery was developed in, one, in some respects as a solution to that problem because it was aimed at battlefield surgery. The movements of the robot could be sent at the speed of light to a far off site and have the surgeon sitting where he sits take care of somebody in Afghanistan. That was the vision. Uh, within earthly limits, that's possible, and it does work. But to really make this universal, you would still need to break the link between the surgeon sitting at the robotic console and doing all the hand movements and making all the judgments, and the fact that there's one person at the other end receiving the benefit of it. So to get to a truly autonomous robot in something like surgery, I think we have a very long way to go. Would it be possible for relatively straightforward procedures? Um, I'll, I'll, I'm not sure what the best example would be. A, I know a breast biopsy or something where it's relatively straightforward. The parameters anatomically, anatomically could be laid out reasonably well by good imaging, and the imaging could instruct the robot. The simpler you make it, the sooner we might have that, but we don't have it now. So I agree with the, with what you're looking for, and that would be great. But for something like surgery, we're a long way from getting there. Your new book, um, Craig, is an autobiography. It leads us through your life. It tells us why you chose this career. How did you begin? When did you make the decision to become a heart surgeon? Well, to be to become a heart surgeon specifically, as opposed to a surgeon in general, I decided when I was an intern, up to that point, just by chance through medical school and so on, I had never seen heart surgery. So at that point in my life, I assumed I'd be an orthopedist because I'd been an orthopedic victim so many times growing up, or I thought I might be a plastic surgeon because that sounded sort of precise and interesting. Uh, neither of those lit the spark when I was involved with them at that early stage. But as soon as I saw heart surgery, I was hooked. It was really just like day and night. Uh, Why? Well, the first exposure I got was in the ICU, taking care of the patients after heart surgery. And that's where you get exposed to the really fascinating real-time physiology that goes into managing the cardiovascular system. Uh, and it's very, it's real-time in ways that things like Neurosurgery are not quite, and other kinds of surgery are not quite, because the heart's beating, you know, 60 times a minute, and you have to control that. And if you don't control that for five minutes, that's it. Uh, that's an oversimplification, of course, but there are a lot of variables that go into maintaining the circulation of blood to the brain and the body. And the heart's right in the middle of it, and you spend a lot of time and thought manipulating those variables to make sure patients do well. So. 
I was exposed to that end of it in the ICU. And then as soon as I saw what goes on in the operating room, and it's, uh, it's the place where the clock really matters. Every stitch matters. Uh, you're playing for all the ashes. Uh, it's very high stakes. If, if you don't fix what's broken, the patient won't leave the room. And that's, there are other kinds of surgery where that is sometimes true, but not quite as universally true as in heart surgery. So it was those two things really that hooked me. You're playing God in a sense. Your, your, your skill or lack of skill results in someone dying or staying alive. Many are called, Craig, fewer chosen. Do you think the types of people called to heart surgery are the types who like to play God, A-type personalities? Well, yes, yes. We don't. We wouldn't all like to think we're actually playing God, but I get what you're. I get what you're going. Where you're going with that? But yes, there is clearly a personality. There's a surgical personality, and there is a within surgery. There are different kinds of personalities, and there is definitely one type that gravitates towards specialties where some of those things I just described apply. So, the people who care about procedures that are very precise. And technically, technically demanding where every stitch counts and the outcome is somewhat hanging in the balance. They tend to go into heart surgery, neurosurgery, vascular surgery. Uh, in the belly, they go into hepatobiliary surgery, liver transplant, those kinds of things. Lung surgery, the big things where those things matter. Now, my friends in other parts of surgery will immediately point out that there is very complicated high-risk surgery in ear, nose, and throat, and the neck, and neck cancers, and in endocrine surgery, taking out the, the, the adrenals. There are a whole bunch of things I'm, I'm, I might be accused of dissing here. But in broad strokes, broad generalizations, there are different personalities that follow these paths. Is there a dark side to this, Craig? The types of people who are drawn to this often turn out to be authoritarian, male, perhaps abusive in other ways. I'm not suggesting you're guilty of that. But um, is, is that something of concern? Maybe not so much for you. You've written this autobiography. You're certainly not going to do your dirty washing in public on that front. But does it concern you that perhaps some of the more prominent and powerful surgeons uh, are not necessarily the right people to manage nurses and junior doctors and perhaps even deal with patients? Uh, there is definitely some truth to that. And there are, I guess, at some point you have to decide what matters most. And is someone who's a very difficult personality, but uniquely capable of achieving the right outcome in the operating room, where are the trade-offs? And But you're absolutely right. There's a spectrum of dysfunctions that can be linked to the same things that produce that, that, that surgeon who can produce the stunning outcome when there's blood all over the floor and you know, the outcome is resting in the balance of a few moves in a few minutes. There are some people who can pull that off, but there are not nice people and they scream and yell and they make everybody in the room afraid of them and uh yeah it's not the right way to approach it uh, 
can we train people out of that? Maybe. Uh, right now, I say that the, my profession is highly focused on that side of it, on the behavioral side of things, uh, almost more than on the outcome side of things, which frankly worries me a little bit. I talk about that in the book a little bit. But to get back to where you started, you're absolutely right. It can There can be a flip side to this. It's not not the greatest social personality. We are talking with a man who does have a social personality, Craig R. Smith. He has a new book out, Nobility in Small Things, uh, A Surgeon's Path. He was the man who saved Bill Clinton's life, and he has a book out, and it's a COVID book. After the break, I want to talk about this transformation um, in perhaps the medical system itself and in Craig's life that COVID brought. But I want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you and us by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, an excellent publication. I'm going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with Craig R. Smith to talk about the impact of COVID on him, his life and the medical system more broadly. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Craig R. Smith, MD, the author of Nobility in Small Things, A Surgeon's Path. Um, in many ways, the book begins in March 2020. Do you remember where you were, Craig? What, what was going through your mind in March 2020? We all remember that uh, month or certainly yeah. a few days in, in March 2020. What's so important? for you? Why did it trigger this book? Well, it, in one respect, in one very practical respect, it triggered this book by generating interest in what I had to say because of the communications I wrote to my department every day for 59 days straight, starting on March 15th. So if you go back to that, and that's what led to interest in a book and publishers and all. But if you go back to what was it about March 15th, the Ides of March in 2020, that two days prior, we had made the decision at the hospital, the leadership gathered and made the decision to stop all elective surgery. And that is something that has never happened in my lifetime, has rarely happened in anyone's lifetime. Uh, just unprecedented. Uh, even I don't maybe there were times in 1918 that something like that happened, not that I'm aware of. So it was stopping elective surgery that was the trigger. Was it the right decision in retrospect? Well, yes, and yes, on that day it was. We, it, it was driven by another, that particular decision that day was driven by another completely unprecedented thing that none of us had ever thought possible. And that we were about to run out of personal protective equipment. The, <laughs> the thing we take for granted, sitting with masks and gloves and so on, sitting on the shelves, we were about to run out of that. We still, at that point, we still had ventilators and operating rooms and other stuff, but dialysis machines, stuff that would become issues later. We were about to run out of the most basic things that would protect all of us and patients from infection. So that was to preserve what we call PPE was really the main thing that, that 
caused that change. An elective operation, the ones that I do, for example, you use 40 or 50 masks in, in each case and a whole bunch of other stuff, gowns, gloves, in a typical case. And all that stuff had to be diverted to the emergency room during that point in time, the emergency room and the ICUs, which were filling up with COVID patients. So that was, that was what it was about that particular day. Now, you ask an interesting question, was it the right choice? Well, as time went on, we really had to wrestle with that and decide when to reopen the gates a little bit because what that did was displace all these other people with valid disease, which might have been what we call elective on March 15th, but maybe on April 1st, they were sicker and it was no longer elective. We had to have some way to accommodate change in levels of illness and also without, without changes in level of illness, have some way to triage one condition versus another, cancer versus heart disease. So in someone without COVID, there are all these people with disease that's not COVID who need treatment. How do we triage them? So that was where, again, it was unprecedented. So we can be very self-critical in retrospect, but whether or not uh, should we have turned the faucet back on a little sooner, hard to say. Speaking of unprecedented, Craig, um, this had an unprecedented impact on Craig R. Smith's life. You'd spent 38 years getting up at 4.15 a.m., making your turkey sandwich and driving to the hospital, and then everything changed. What kind of impact did this have on you? Well, that's not another good question. That part of the day didn't change much. You know, I've been doing that so long. Uh, that doesn't change. But and and I didn't have to necessarily, but I still went into the hospital most every day. I'm just a, a creature of habit. But I also felt even if I wasn't operating and doing the thing that I'm really paid to do, I needed to be there showing the flag and just showing that, that we, we weren't all hiding in the Hamptons. So that part of my didn't change. That, that part of my day didn't change that much. What did change was the bulk of my day, as on a typical day, if I'm doing a couple of operations, I would be in the operating room from eight or nine to eleven or twelve, and then out briefly, and then back in for another few hours, and that would be the bulk of anyone's day, and that was all gone, and that opens up headspace for a lot of things that had been either crowded out or weren't even up there floating around for those 38 years. So is that, borrowing those words, Craig, is that what this new book is all about? The headspace that COVID, for better or worse, established in your head? I actually think, I hope that, that I understand why you're calling it a COVID book, because that's definitely in there. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't mean to call, I mean, it, yeah. I, I mean that COVID in some ways triggered it. It's not a pure COVID yeah. book. Right. No, it, it definitely triggered it, if only because the writing that I did on those 59 days got picked up. The, the one that I wrote on the 20th or 22nd, I forget which date of March, got tweeted. And all of a sudden, I had this vast audience I never knew about. Uh, and that was what led to the notion that I should write a book. So once then I had this contract and a stack of blank pages, well, to me, it was logical to think about how did I get here and what do I do here? Uh, and how did all that interweave with my reaction to COVID and everyone else's reaction to COVID? So in that sense, 
COVID certainly plays a part in the book, but it, it was more about what I do and how I got. Yeah, here. and what were you tweeting? Why, why did it, why did your tweets go viral? Well, that it wasn't me, <laughs> uh, but that particular tweet I sent, I wrote, you know, three or four minutes if you were going to read it. I had sort of in mind the length of a popular song, which most people can listen to. So several hundred words uh, up to maybe 700 words. And I would do that every day and it would be emailed to my department. So that's 500 and some people. And on that particular day, what I wrote was about Balto. Uh, I don't know if you if you've read that particular one or you have it in front of you, but I made the comparison to the serum run for gnome with anti-diphtheria serum mm. back to what we had to do now. And that we at least we doctors had the advantage of being able to, you know, load up the sled, hook up Balto and do something instead of just sitting around feeling impotent and so on. And I said, we mush on. And it was, I don't know, six sentences or something. Uh, and that got picked up. That was what somebody treated, uh, tweeted or X'd. It was what was tweeted and then ended up getting passed around. And the next thing I knew, they were all being tweeted and they were, uh, it was uh, quite something. It revealed those tweets and some of your other writing revealed another side that perhaps many people didn't know, a more vulnerable side, a more anxious side. Was that always there, Craig, or, or did this crisis in March 2020, did it bring it out in everybody? Are, are you referring to a specific, are you referring to, to the chapter that I wrote about what I called my autonomic storm? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that had, <laughs> I had somehow or other left that behind, I'd say at least several years before 2020 rolled around. And it has yet to recur, you know, pray, pray to God. Uh, and it came on very suddenly. I, what, how, how I describe it in the book is exactly how it happened. I had not had anything like that in my life until then. Never considered myself prone to anxiety more than anybody, more than normal. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I was ever super gregarious. I was probably a little more reserved and introspective than maybe the average, you know, jock doctor kind of person. But I, I would not have told you I was anything like anxious, panic attacks. One of the reasons I go into the book about how I still can hardly accept the, the, the term panic attacks is I think of myself as somebody who can't panic. I don't panic. Uh, I deal. And so where did this come from all of a sudden? So, uh, so it didn't, it is not a recent phenomenon. It wasn't an earlier phenomenon, but boy, it was a problem for 10 or 15 years in the middle. Do we live, um, you're a heart doctor, a heart surgeon, rather than a mental health expert, but we've done many shows, Craig, on what many people refer to as our age of anxiety. Do you see it in those terms? Maybe not so much from a medical point of view, but just as someone who lives in New York City and lived through COVID and has been around for many years as a well, I, I totally get what you're saying, and you're right. It's being called the age of anxiety and so on. I don't feel it that way, and I have a hard time separating what I fear we're teaching people to feel about anxiety from 
what is actually going on. And whether it's a new, a new and measurably new phenomenon, I don't know. Uh, but you're absolutely right. This is considered to be the age of anxiety, and we're supposed to be paying more attention to our own feelings and taking care of ourselves and so forth. Uh, again, as I, as I get into a little bit in the book, I think that begins to walk a fine line between uh, me and the mission. And the mission has to be ahead of me when push comes to shove, especially in times of crisis. So there is some proper balance. It, it, I, I, don't, I don't think even the people who are most caught up in the age of anxiety would say it's, it has to be all me. They would be the first to say, and I would agree, it can't be all mission either. But we have to get the balance right. So uh, I'm not sure I'm a great participant in the age of anxiety. We're speaking with Craig R. Smith, MD, the author of Nobility in Small Things, A Surgeon's Path. Craig, we've done a lot of shows on the age of COVID. History moves so fast, it's so odd. During COVID, when I started doing this show on a very regular basis, it seemed to be ubiquitous, all-encompassing. No one could imagine that it would ever end, and it changed everything. We did a show with Eli Sasslow, for example on how COVID brought out all the best and worst things about America. But now it seems so distant. Now we're, this week we're obsessed with what's happening in the Middle East. Next week it will be something else, maybe global warming or inequality. Um, do you think COVID really changed anything? Uh, yes, I, I do. Whether it, but like, like the rest of, things that roll out in our present and into our future. It's hard to know, sitting here today, what the impacts will be a few years from now, just as hard as it was to know in 2020, what, where we would be in 2023. But it was such an enormous event. I mean, unprecedented global pandemic at a time when global meant something it had never meant before in history because of speed of communication and so all those obvious things. So it can't help but have some kind of important impact on the future. I think it's a little too soon to say how much. And you're right. I think what you're getting at is remarkable how much uh, one, say, 2021 or so, 22, wondering whether we would ever get back to new normal. And then here we are, and people, it's like a distant memory in many respects. Although that prime sort of uh, immunologic memory is right back there waiting for the next pandemic. And people are highly sensitized right now to infectious diseases. I mean, it's just one thing after another. It's, it's fungus one week, it's something else another week. People are terrified of another thing like this. And I get it, but we'll have to muddle through like we did the last time when that happens. What about the impact on the medical system? We did many, many shows with one kind of doctor or another on how the American medical system can be fixed, make it fairer. We did one with Alex Jahangir, who's a very influential doctor in uh, Colorado. Another with um, Stephen Thrasher, who wrote a book about the health of the viral underclass. Do you think that the COVID experience made medicine fairer in America? It still seems to be so dysfunctional. Nothing has profoundly changed, has it? 
I'm afraid I would have to agree with you that the changes on that scale have been a little hard to see. This, this is really such a complicated topic. You know, where in the spectrum of no health care for anyone to complete unlimited health care for everyone, where on that enormous spectrum should we be and how far off are we? That in itself is a big question, but then there's a different answer for different parts of society right now, so it seems. And at, at one end of the spectrum where it, it never used to exist, we have people paying for concierge service, paying thousands and thousands of dollars for routine health care just because they can afford it and they don't want to wait in line or sit in the dirty waiting room with dirty people. Uh, I, I'm sounding critical of these people. I get that. That's if people have money and they want to have that kind of health care is important to everyone. So if you're at that end of the spectrum and you can pay for it, I can't hate them for paying for it. But at the same time, since COVID, the number of people who are dependent entirely on Medicaid insurance, for example, has greatly increased. I just heard, I think this morning, that it's up to, in this area, in New York, 53% of the population and 70% in the Bronx. Uh, this was, I, don't quote me without substantiation, this was, this was told to me this morning, but there is something like that going on across the U.S. And Medicaid is well-intentioned and a great program for the people who are on it, but it doesn't pay the cost of care delivered. So still in this country, the overall healthcare dollar is subsidized heavily by the people who can afford to pay. It helps cover the gaps in Medicaid because around this area, any hospital that has more than 40% of its revenue coming from Medicaid can't survive without subsidies from the government or from someone else. So I, could, you know, I, I don't want to go on too long on this topic, but I say you're right. We haven't solved that problem. COVID exacerbated some elements of it. Whether it improved some elements of it, I'd like to think so. Uh, I would like to think that in the long run, people will be more vaccination savvy, for example, and maybe a little bit more public health savvy than they were before. But uh, it's not a dramatic change, at least from where I sit. Finally, Craig, we began with Bill Clinton. Let's end with the great man. Have you seen him since... Um since you did the the surgery yes yes several times and how does he does he treat you like a god like a miracle man <laughs> no i wouldn't say so he actually he treats me like he treats other people and does he shake I, does he shake your hands and look you in the eye and you feel like you're the oh, only person in the room well but that's his that's his mo yes he does that with me like he does with everybody else but in all seriousness he, when you he, meet people who, at least in their mind, you saved their life. You probably would say you didn't. You were just doing your job. It must be a rather odd experience for you, isn't it? Do you feel comfortable in that situation? Uh, I, I do and I don't. I, I think it's um, because it's something I do every day. Some of the, uh, some of the uniqueness of that interaction is buffered a bit, but it is, I think in the book I go into this a little bit, maybe not, but it's a little bit like the relationship between a minister or a priest and a parishioner sometimes, 
where they uh, re regard you in a way that doesn't translate to small talk. And yet that kind of thankfulness is, is one of the greatest privileges of the profession. You don't have to do heart surgery to get it. I mean, taking care of people counts. I mean, I feel the same way about my doctors. And I've, I've had plenty of operations of various things. And, and I regard my surgeons with the same kind of extra bit of reverence that I think my patients probably regard me. Uh, and it's not, a, it's not an uncomplicated relationship socially. It's a little bit, there's a distance. And that's both parties, I think, appreciate a little bit of distance in that setting. And when you come home at night, Craig, and you take that white coat off for people watching, he's got his white coat on, he's talking to us from the hospital, although fortunately none of us were on the operating table. Do you sometimes wish that you, that you didn't have this division between wearing the white coat and being a regular human being? It's uh, a very good question. And I guess I don't think I do very often regret it. I, I think I'm capable of stepping out of my role when, when I have to step out of my role and stepping in, stepping back in when I'm, when the curtain goes back up. But do I navigate that perfectly all the time? Certainly not. Uh, I don't know that I do much worse than most. I might even do a little better than most, but uh, it's certainly something to navigate. I wish I could give you a better answer. 